Welcome to World of Dads, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph and GP of Flex Capital. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, fellow data nerds. My guest today is Sue Gordon. Sue is the former principal deputy director of national intelligence. Prior to that, she served as the deputy director of the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. She's also a senior fellow at the Harvard's Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs. And she currently serves on the boards of several technology and cybersecurity companies, including Microsoft and CACI International. Sue, welcome to World of DAS. Excited to be here. Thanks, Oren. Absolutely. Now, you had a 30-year career at CIA. One of the more compelling things I've heard you say is that the big threat that we face in the country today is about to and through information. Could you unpack that a bit? Yeah. So I think I got to that statement by kind of looking at the world that we are in right now. And I think it has three really interesting conditions. One, I think it's a world of technology ubiquity. And that means every technology is available to everyone. There's a side thread we could go down that says the one that puts it to use faster is the one that's going to win. And those with a big installed base, aka the United States, are going to struggle to be fast because of that. The second aspect of this world is that it's a world of digital connectedness, which obliterates the advantage of geography and the ability to project power that we have so long enjoyed. So we're just all connected. Information moves faster. Knowledge moves faster in this connected world. So things like Navy is less important? I think that a country with no Navy can get across the high seas in a nanosecond and do things digitally. They can't replace a Navy when you need a Navy to have physical presence. But when you want to project power in the digital space, you can do that through wires or through the internet. And then the last is that it's a world of data abundance. When I started my career in the CIA, we had to be hunters. We were hunting for the few pieces of information that would make a difference. And now we're being overwhelmed by it. If we can command it, then it's a boon for us. If we can't, then it's a bane. And so when I say threats are to and through information, you see it with cyber activity. You see people potentially manipulating it or destroying it or stealing it. And the two information is just the obverse of that. So it's a data world and it's a digital world. And that changes where threats and advantage lie. Nicole Perloff, a cybersecurity partner, she was on this podcast recently. And she said that the U.S. is one of the strongest countries in the world when it comes to cyber offense, but it is maybe one of the most vulnerable when it's on cyber defense. Would you agree with that? There's a truth to it. I think the strength in cyber offense is just our technical strength and the fact that We've been doing integrated operations for a long time, so you never want to be stuck with one domain in which you're trying to affect things. And we're very good at integrating physical, human, and digital. And so I think that is one of the things that makes us good on the offensive side. On the defensive side, I think it's more just a liability of being a free and open society. The threat surface has gone beyond that, which is government-controlled. And so there's a lot of interesting stuff for our adversaries and competitors to do in open society. And open society gets to make a choice about how they want to protect themselves. We're trying to make that better. You have a really vibrant cybersecurity community. I think the government's gotten better about talking about the threats and the responsibility of non-governmental entities to protect. But man, that's a hard lift because on some level, 
protecting yourself is a cost. And if you don't perceive yourself to be either important enough to be under attack or responsible enough for security, you can make a choice that's based on economics rather than based on need. So I, I don't think she's wrong, but I don't think it's for lack of ability. I think it's more just an artifact of an open society. One of the biggest challenges in the intelligence world is the rise of open source intelligence. What countries do you think are really good at OSINT? China, its history, how it started the intelligence game was human intelligence and using expats and their citizens. So China is super good at it. They also have a very different view of the government's ability to use open information, to collect open information and to use it. That PII thing doesn't mean quite the same thing. And so both historically and just in terms of a modern China that has huge compute capability, good tools, an interesting view about what data they can access, I think gives them the ability not only to collect it, but to play with it and to see how you put it together for advantage. Back to my earlier point about if you don't have an installed base, this is certainly a world that has every answer available to it. And so you're going to see new entrants into the intelligence game use open information more. I think our companies use open information brilliantly. Bridgewater is a great example of a company that can just really understands how to use data for their advantage. Probably the U.S. intelligence community might lag a bit culturally because they have a whole institution built on being able to access more than just that. So I think that's where their challenge will come a bit. In some ways, you can see the difference between secrets and what you can get from open source information used to be quite large and it's narrowing over time. And the U.S. historically has maybe been the best at getting secrets and maybe has underinvested on the OSINT side. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think that's perfectly said. I do think that even with open data and when the intelligence community turns to it, there is a craft to be able to look at data and then assess it with this open-mindedness and craft that allows you to take out both some of the uncertainty and some of the bias. So I think that when the intelligence community turns to using open information, it uses it within their tradecraft that has some advantage to just using data in a straightforward manner. When you were the deputy director of the NGA, the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, that was a time when we're seeing a lot of transformation. We're seeing lots of satellites. We're seeing the democratization of space. It used to be that only a small number of government entities have access to this, and now the whole world does. How do you see that moving over time? I think you can't shake your fist at the cosmos and wish that it were better, wish that we had exclusive access, wish that the advantage were just to a small few. So one, let's just embrace the fact that space has been democratized, that data is abundant, it's getting more abundant every time, and the capabilities of the satellites are improving to not only produce data, but actually to produce insights and information. So one, it's happening. Let's embrace it. Two, I really think we'll put aside the benefit to government in the narrow national security sense. I think what it's going to do from a societal standpoint to be able to look at smaller changes, global activity, to understand everything from human movement to climate, 
I think is really an exciting prospect in terms of the use of these assets for a whole range of benefit to human activity by just the perspective you get. From an intelligence perspective, it certainly will be and has closed the gap in terms of our advantage of some of the first players in space to now everyone can do things. I think you worry a little bit more about not being able to hide your activities because the Earth is being seen all the time with ever-increasing capabilities. You also worry that people understand that those commercial assets are now part of what's available to governments and do they become targets. So I think a whole bunch of things come into play with their introduction. If I just look at it writ large, I think it's a benefit and an exciting time, both societally and from a national security perspective, because they are providing capabilities that heretofore weren't available. And that cost curve of basically getting satellites into space, operating satellites, building satellites, that cost curve is coming down super dramatically over the last couple of decades. If you're looking from a negative lens, you're like, damn, everyone's going to be able to do it. If you're looking from a positive lens, you say, no, we know how to use it better. Let's use that advantage. Let's use these economics, whether it's the launch, being able to put things into space more cheaply, or whether it's just the size and the readiness of the smaller satellites that we can use to get either greater coverage or to do some clever things with how you insert them into different orbits at different times. Are there other types of things where you see the costs coming down so dramatically that may have different effects on the U.S. government intelligence? What is generally available in terms of the combination and data and compute And not only to be able to see events, but to understand patterns, I think that always is concerning because part of security is being able to not expose your activities. I just think how much information can be used to understand human activity, and that includes national security activity, is just plummeting in terms of cost and accelerating in terms of capability, the, the world's just getting more transparent. And that challenges that singular aspect of intelligence and security. But again, it also provides opportunity for us to be clever in terms of how we use it. Even these non-governmental groups like Bellingcat, they're producing increasingly sophisticated intelligence. And most of those people have no formal intelligence training at all. How do you think that's going to play out over time? We think about intelligence as being secret information. I think the power of intelligence is the craft that allows you to take what is fundamentally uncertain and put it in a wrapper that allows people to deal with it with certainty. And so that's the craft. How do you take out the bias? How do you capture what is not what you prefer? How do you look at patterns? Because one of the things we know is you can make a pattern out of anything, even if that pattern doesn't exist. So I think what's exciting about the Bellingcats and other organizations that are creating aggregated information products is it's making everyone better be able to see more clearly. I've long had a theory that evil can't succeed in the light. So more information to produce more truth is a good thing. I do think that if the intelligence community doesn't really embrace open, what will happen is it will come screaming by. 
it will be increasingly used and its inherent weakness because it doesn't necessarily have that craft behind it is going to minimize the value of it rather than take advantage of all that information. So I think it's going to keep precessing. The reason why I think the security community has to embrace it is because there are things that can be misread or manipulated or misused without craft behind how you understand it and see it. And I think that would be a waste if that craft weren't applied to all this information. It does seem even today that OSINT, if you talk to people in the intelligence community, is the third cousin stepchild once removed, and it still doesn't get the respect. Even at the CIA, it's like this other building somewhere. It's not even at headquarters. Do you think that's just going to take time to get more credibility within the community? There is a cultural aspect to it. It's just kind of who you are and what you thought about. And wouldn't I rather have data that were curated for me that I built the system to collect and put on the targets that I wanted to know? There's a strength in that and a comfort in that and a value in that. And there are things about open information, which is running around openly for use or whether that is what companies have that is commercially available information that I think probably hasn't been as curated. And so it's a big volume that you're trying to use and fit it into something. I try and talk about intelligence sometimes in terms of how do people understand what intelligence fundamentally is. And I give an analogy of a jigsaw puzzle. Would you like doing jigsaw puzzles? Would you like doing a jigsaw puzzle if you don't know the picture? Do you like doing a jigsaw puzzle if you don't know the picture and you only have a quarter of the pieces? And do you like doing all that if the president wants to know what it is in five minutes to make a consequential decision when you know that you are always dealing with something with a gap in it? You want to make sure that anything you add into that analysis is something that you can trust. And so I think there is a reality to trying to figure out how we take all this, how the community takes all this open information and puts it into their assessments in a manner that that assessment that they make still has standing. It's just work. The Ukraine war, in some ways, has really highlighted the value of OSINT. And you just see all these very, very, they're moving very, very quickly with using different open source information. Do you think that's caught the attention of both U.S. intelligence and other governments? I think that's one of the most exciting developments. It's like all these capabilities, all these commercial capabilities got a chance to shine, whether that is Starlink and the flexibility that allowed in terms of communication, or whether that is the black skies of the planets, or the Maxars that are providing imagery to the forces, and what that allowed Ukraine that didn't have a huge installed base to be able to do. I think that does capture the imagination, both the government of the United States in terms of, oh, look how we can be innovated, and governments of other nations that don't have big install bases. So I think you're going to see a lot with that. I think there's some downsides to it, where now everyone knows that commercial satellites are providing that. Do they become targets? And that's an interesting question. How would that even work? Because especially these low-Earth satellites, there's so much redundancy if you have a 1,000 of them or something like that. Okay, well, if you take down 10, it doesn't really do anything to the capabilities. Yeah, but it's not just taking down, what if you jam them, what if you do things? So, so I just think it opens up those questions. Again, I'm squarely on the side of, there's no putting this genie back in the bottle, so let's use the heck out of it. But there are things that come into it. Can it be spoofed? I also think in terms of 
using these incredible capabilities, there are limitations to them that we're probably not talking as much about that will have to be wrung out. But all in all, I think it's an exciting prospect. I also think that it reveals for national security and national defense communities, man, we need to be innovative in our systems. That flexibility is actually the flexibility that we're going to need. And not only revealed what's possible, but put some pressure to say, man, that flexibility was incredibly beneficial. Shouldn't that flexibility be part of our architectures? Now, in the Ukraine war, there certainly have been a lot of losers, including the country of Ukraine, including Russia. They seem to be the losers. Who are the winners? I think the winners are free and open society. It is a devastating conflict. And it threatens our world order, the idea that someone can just go take some land because they declare that it's theirs. For a major power, be able to use their power and really decimate a country. I think that's awful. I think there have been some winners in terms of alliances and coalition. I think before the Ukraine crisis, and I'll bet Putin did not believe on the heels of Syria, on the heels of Afghanistan, on the heels of Iran in 2019, would we be able to pull together a coalition that has lasted this long? I think he probably believed that he could shatter that with time and that's held very well. So I think the alliances or the notion of huddling together for warmth has been a winner. I also think a winner is free and open societies. Clearly, it seems like China is a winner in this. You don't agree? If I'm she, I'm thinking pretty hard about this. I'm looking at a Russian military that had more experience than probably the Chinese military has had in terms of conducting war. And look how difficult it's been for them. Also, look how easy I think Russia thought it was going to be to drive down the highway and take Kiev and look at where they are. So I think there are some aspects of this that cause question about readiness and difficulty in doing this. I think there's some troubling lessons that she might learn, which is if I'm going to go, I better go with all the power that I have, and that would be worrisome. But I do think that there are citizens around the world that are looking at what Ukrainian people did, how fiercely they have fought for their view and what they have. And if you even look about Russia's adventurism in Europe, this is very different than Georgia in 2008 or Ukraine in 2014 or Crimea in 2015. This got much harder just because of the will of the people. So it's hard to say that that's a winner, but I do think that there is this glimmer of we just aren't going to think that we have to be subjected to power with no voice of our own. Just about everything in the public sphere, intelligence has become increasingly polarized in the last few years. How do you think the intelligence community has fared during these more hyper-partisan times? I actually am really proud of the intelligence community. On the one hand, I do think that they have an advantage of this is their want. The role of intelligence is just to ruthlessly pursue the truth. They are not the policy maker. And so their job culturally is to just present what it is they see, and then the chips fall where they may. Even under the pressure of the Trump administration, the pressure was disbelieving is not 
a troublesome pressure for the intelligence community. Heck, that's been <laughs> we've we've dealt with presidents with varying degrees of trust or belief or comfort with intelligence. So it knows how to do that. I think the hardest thing for the intelligence community under the previous administration, the hyperpartisan environment we're on now, is questioning its integrity. The intelligence community knows it can be wrong every time. It hates that, and it works really hard not to be. But having its conclusions challenged is not difficult. Having its integrity challenged, I think, is hard as a country, having our institutions that surely need to grow to be more modern and more modernly relevant, but to have them challenged as being malfeasant, I think that is an incredible problem for society because the strength of this country is that we do have institutions that do keep the laws. And so I think the IC has done very well. I think it's who it is culturally. I think it is much harder for them to be manipulated than you would think because that's just, they know their job is. But this overall runbeat that started even before the Trump administration got pretty loud in the Trump administration, but you even hear it now that our institutions can't be trusted. It is not what I find to be true, but even more so, I worry about what that does to society if leaders are telling you that your institutions can't be trusted. There's been a decline in general in trust in elites and trust in experts. How much do you think the elites and experts are to blame for that decline? If I take all the way back to this conversation, there is a problem with an installed base. You know, anything you've been doing for a long time, you start believing in it. And even for you, it's harder for you to imagine that something could be different from what you thought. And I think intelligence is susceptible to that. Could there be a change? And you know, if you look at intelligence failures over time, a lot of the intelligence failures are predicated on this notion that we never imagined that Saddam Hussein would lie about having nuclear weapons. It just wasn't something we thought would happen. And so we misread that. We didn't think that Khrushchev would put weapons in our hemisphere. And so we missed that. So I think that is always one of our weaknesses is that we get locked on what we have assessed for such a long time that you can't imagine that the world has turned differently. And man, this world is different. It's different in speed. It's different in connection. It's different in wherewithal. So I think probably that's its weakness and its responsibility for leaders being frustrated with the institutions because they seem to be repeating their beliefs rather than engaging in relooking at it now. But I don't think that the responsibility is in any way a political reaction to a preference over whose policies are facing. The institution may be slow and not good enough. It tends not to care as much about the prevailing policies and wins, as you might think. It, it really sees its job differently. So, yep, it's got the responsibility when it's stodgy and doesn't respond to a new environment. I worry a lot less about whether it starts having an opinion or not. We had Richard Haas on the outgoing president of the Council of Foreign Relations, and even he thought that maybe the foreign policy establishment got most of the very big things wrong in the last 20 years or so. How would you grade the quote-unquote foreign policy establishment? 
well, that's hard for an intelligence officer. <laughs> you know, like culturally, I'm like, oh, have an opinion on policy. My view falls into the category of just believing that the status quo is the status quo. If we'll go to former Trump administration, I remember even before he was inaugurated, President Tsai of Taiwan wanted to give a congratulatory phone call. And the establishment said, oh, my God, you can't take a phone call. The free world will end. The one China policy will be called into question. He took the phone call and the free world didn't end. And then when he wanted to move the U.S. It's kind of the emperor has no clothes. And then he wanted to move the embassy in Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. We said, okay, the free world didn't end with the side call, but it's going to end now. (laughs) And so I do think that especially with modern leaders or leaders who are not part of the establishment, those sorts of misses of appearing to just have a standing line rather than leaping into the fray and saying, look, what do we really think is going on now? I think is something that we really need to address and make sure. When you mentioned Richard Haas, one great man, just in his tenure, the CFR is stronger than one person, but boy, has he done a great job with it. Mike Mullen and I just completed an independent task force on U.S. policy toward Taiwan, we fought the same thing where we came down with some pretty direct conclusions about research in China, what should our policy toward Taiwan be? And I know as we present it, there are people who say, man, you're challenging the peace that has existed for a long time. The 40-year world order on it. And what we're saying, yeah, how's that working for us? So I do think that that's a fair criticism and probably something that every new leader needs to make sure that they ask their institution to make sure they're looking at it newly, but it is a risk. One of the things that you're known for is really helping and being a big advocate for NQTEL, which is charged with bringing in intelligence, so bringing technology into the intelligence community and helping fund different technology companies. How do you think that's gone? Over It's been almost about 20 years since NQTEL was founded. Unbelievable. 25 this year. Can you believe that? Oh, wow. Okay. I didn't realize that. It's mostly gone great. I love that that long ago... The CIA figured out that you can give up some things you believe, that everything has to be classified, that you have to own all the intellectual property in order for it to be available for their use, or that you have to really tightly control a statement of work yourselves to get something good. I think InQtel broke down a lot of barriers. It was actually, we formed it using other transaction authority that's now in vogue. I think there are a lot of good things about it. Talk about something that people thought the free world would end on. When I first started that effort, there were a lot of people that said, you're going to ruin us. (laughs) That didn't happen. I think it's been great at one of the aspects we were trying to have it addressed, which is those technologies that will solve big government problems, but might not survive commercially if it's commercial forces that have to keep it along. I think InQtel has done great at really giving funding to those. And you just have to look at some of the things from data miner to Palantir to Google Earth to a lot of things that show their pedigree to early recognition by InQtel that they were worth something. A huge move into the cybersecurity companies came through InQtel investment. So I think it's done great at that. 
we hoped it would overcome the valley of death, that it would be solve this problem, we get new into use faster. I think we still struggle with that a bit. You can see that the Air Force with their cyber program was trying to do the same thing. And we're still trying to figure out how you get things into use. So I don't think it overcame that. But holy smokes, so many things that are now available for not only government use, but societal use because of taking big national security questions and driving them into supporting companies. I heard you say that from original tasking to the incorporation of InQtel only took about seven months, which seems like at least 10 times faster. You think it takes at least seven years. So government can move fast, even though it maybe almost never does. How does one actually do something so that government can move faster and accelerate things? One of my favorite briefings, Oren, is what I call the true story of the formation of InQtel in terms of how it happened in seven months. I'm so proud of that because before that, I used to talk about the YouTube and it's 11 months as being one of those examples. So here's what I would say to anybody. One, the government can do anything. This idea that government employees are hamstrung by all the rules. I didn't break any rules to do InQtel. So it didn't require not one new statute, not anything. So one is I want the government to think that they're big. The second thing is we had a really clear view of what we wanted to have happen. In other words, we could articulate it well, and we had such a compelling need that we got Congress to actually give us a top-line ad. I think if we hadn't gotten a top-line ad in that first year, it could have easily fallen into just trying to find money year after year. So Congress really helped that along. George Tenet was a leader that wanted an outcome, but didn't insist on himself wringing out every single detail. In other words, he gave me the task, we came up with a solution, and I think he trusted it before he understood it. And that's a huge part of it too. I think if we make everything go through every scrutiny at every level so that every person has to decide you're going to have it. So I think there are some great things to look at with the InQtel case and some others where If you're clear enough about your need, if you engage the Congress to make sure that the funding is – and Congress wants these big things to happen too, and then you assign it to people who believe they're supposed to deliver it, I don't think there's anything about this environment that would preclude fast things happening again. Plus, the companies that are out there, there is so much patriotism and desire to help make good things happen. I. Man, you've just convinced me to miss being in the government because <laughs> I think you could take almost any vision and make it happen effectively if you believe you were supposed to and you were clear enough about the need. Now, you've had a weird career. In 30 years at CIA, you held senior positions in each of the CIA's four directorates, right? the operations analysis, science, technology, and support. I don't know anyone. I mean, maybe it has happened, but I don't really know of anyone else who's done that. How did that happen? And I imagine that that's a good thing to move around because you probably learn a lot. These different directorates might have different bureaucratic battles with one another. And if you move between them, you can move some of those battles. What's the backstory there? (laughs) Well, it was a weird and wonderful career. I look at this and I'm like, how in the world did I get to do that? If I break it down and give you the backstory, I think one of them is, is I always had my head down my nose down. I always tried to own the space I was in and just be really good at my job, but keep my head up and understand that there's a job we do. And then there's the job 
that is really being done above us. And so first things first, I became someone who did things and then someone you wanted to hire if you needed things done. So to me, that I was someone who would do things became my transportation. I think my role in it was I always believed that I had to learn the new job, not just do my old job in a new location. So just that belief and working hard to acquire new knowledge let me move through it. And like I said, if you're someone who can do things, people will hire you. I think there's one downside is I think by the end of my career, I was someone who was on every team, but in a weird sort of way, I was not on any team. And so for me, the fact that all I ever wanted to do was to make good happen, it worked out and that trade was totally worth it. I think there were days that I just wanted somebody to give me the cushy corner office because it was the next thing to have. That never really came. But Ginny Vermetti, former CEO of IBM, came to CIA for dinner one night. She an interesting person. And somehow we were talking about my story. She said, well, how in the world did someone like you with a bachelor's degree in zoology ever succeed here? And I actually give most of the credit to the CIA. There was something really lovely about the CIA that tended to judge you more on performance than pedigree. The idea that all I had to do was be good in order to have any career I wanted, that's a pretty good organizational recipe for some success, and not just for one person, but quite frankly, for any person. Now, before your career in college, you were the captain of the Duke basketball team, I think for three years in a row. I'm sure that taught you something about leadership. I think I've always been a leader, but mostly because when your vision exceeds what you can do, you have to lead. Duke taught me a lot about leadership. Yeah, it sounds like, gosh, I must have been a really good basketball player. I was an okay basketball player. I never started a game except my senior game. So how do you explain for being a captain for three years? And I think the answer is I was all about outcome every single day. Oh, I wanted to play. But more than that, I wanted us to win. So you do whatever you can do in the space that you own to deliver the outcome you want. And turns out, that's kind of fundamentally what leadership is. Yeah. In some ways, that's who I want to hire. I want to hire the consummate team player who maybe didn't start the role player and who did everything possible, made everyone around them better, did everything possible to get their team to win. I think that's what leadership is. Yeah. At some point, you've got to be able to hold the vision in your head, but more you just have to be willing to do whatever it needs and use every player to the best way to have it. That's leadership. Now, in the intelligence world, there's so many conspiracy theories that fly around. As you mentioned, people love to find patterns, even when patterns don't exist. What is a conspiracy theory that you believe? Oh, man. Well, I, I do believe Lee Harvey Oswald asked, acted alone. And how do you explain the Jack Ruby thing? That doesn't make any sense to me. No, but see, here's my point. is There's no way we could have kept it secret for that long. Right. So that's why. And it's funny. I once had this conversation with former President Trump. And I said, you do know there's no deep state because we can't organize ourselves. And more than that, if there's a deep state, I'm not part of it because I'm simply not a joiner. I don't think I'm a huge conspiracy gal. Maybe it's my zoological background and just this whole interview thing that we're all mostly trying to fly apart. So this idea that you can get tons of things to secretly come together and hold together for so long. I'm not much of a conspiracy gal. God, so you don't really believe any conspiracy theories? Not really. Okay. That's what I expect. I do believe in magic. Oh, you do? Okay. Oh, sure. I like that. There are miracles already. 
This has been amazing. Last question we ask all of our guests, what conventional wisdom or advice do you think is generally bad advice? Listen to this whole answer before you lose your mind. (laughs) I think the advice that we've been giving people to focus on networking and mentoring and finding all that is right, but it's the wrong place to start. Start with being really good. Yep. Adding value. And then all those things will help you have effect. But if you think that all those activities are going to be enough, if you're not really good, you're going to end up wondering why you can't do anything. So start by being good. And actually, you just think of the value of having a network, I think, is going down over time in general, because it's much easier to reach out and find other people today than it ever once was. And so the value of just who you know is less valuable today. It's still valuable. It's less valuable today than it was, let's say, in the 80s. Now, on that point, though, I will say that kids coming in today, oh my gosh, they know how to use a network. And I think that is a real strength of those. My point is just, it may be necessary, but it's certainly not sufficient. A better place to start is just being good. The organization doesn't have a soul in terms of wants to keep you down. No, the organization wants every person they hire to be great. So go be great. Back to my career. There's nothing about a kid with a bachelor's degree in zoology that could have projected to have my career? And the answer is I just worked on being good and they looked at that rather than my background and it worked out. This is amazing. Thank you, Sue Gordon, for following us on World of Ass. I know you're not on Twitter. I would follow you on Twitter if you were. I'm scarred. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But yeah, this has been really fun. Awesome, Warren. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider reading this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of DAS, and DAS is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at at Oren, that's A-U-R-E-N, Oren, and we'd love to hear from you. World of DAS is brought to you by SafeGraph. SafeGraph is geospatial data for physical places. Check it out at safegraph.com and by Flex Capital. Flex Capital invests in data companies like those we talk about at World of DAS. Check it out at flexcapital.com.